Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Sarah Burstein, Professor of Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, Sarah R. Wasserman Rayetz, Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School, and Andres Sawicki, Professor of Law at the University of Miami School of Law. We will discuss their draft open access patent law casebook, which will be available for adoption for the fall 2021 semester. So welcome to the podcast to all of you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have all of you on, and I'm really excited to see this new casebook coming out, especially in an open access format. And I really enjoyed reading the chapters that you sent me. So congratulations in advance. Um, and by way of starting off the interview, I was wondering if each of you could briefly introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your your background in patent law. Thanks, Brian, for having us. As you said, my name is Sarah Burstein. I teach all the IP. All, I've taught all the classes, at least at the University of Oklahoma. I write mostly about design patents, which are obviously the best patents. I may have a little dissent from my co-authors here, but I maintain that is true. Um, my background is I did litigation, all kinds of IP, but mostly utility patent litigation before I discovered that design patents exist. I also clerked on a district court where I did actually a pretty significant number of patent matters, including a full patent jury trial and a preliminary injunction hearing. Great. So uh, thanks so much for having us, Brian. Um, this is Sarah Wasserman Riots. Uh, my, my background uh, is that I studied physics in undergrad and then went into patent law. Um, you do not have to have a science background to go into patent law. I feel like you have to put that as a footnote always, but, uh, but I did. Um, and so I practiced uh, patent litigation in Boston for a few years. Uh, I uh, Then I sort of switched directions. I clerked uh, at the U.S. Court of International Trade in New York for Judge Pogue um, before going to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, where I clerked for Judge Lori, um, hearing appeals on both uh, both. Uh, uh, patent patent matters and also the the trade matters that came from the CIT um, and so my my interests in research and in teaching um, are both the patent side of things and I teach patent law and also uh, international trade and how it intersects with IP law uh, and so those those are the areas that that I'm probably the most familiar with uh, some some of my writing ends up being straight patent law but some of it some of it draws from international themes. Hi, Brian. Uh, it's Andre Suiki. Thank you also uh, for, for having us. It's been super exciting. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation. So my background, I was an undergrad uh, brain and cognitive sciences major, um, but like many, although not all, certainly not all uh, patent folks, uh, a disaffected former scientist. Um, and as an undergrad, you know, once I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, uh, centrifuging uh, fruit fly brains, I, I took a class on the history of science and technology. We read Diamond versus Chakrabarty, a uh, classic patent case in which uh, the Supreme Court said you could patent uh, genetically modified bacteria. And it was sort of uh, love or, or love-hate at first sight. <laughs> um, and since that moment, I've sort of been obsessed with the question of what it is that, that someone can obtain a patent on. Uh, went to law school with the idea of uh, you know, practicing patent law and then uh, post-law school litigated 
for a few years doing mostly pharmaceutical patent cases, a little bit of uh, medical devices and some consumer electronics. Um, and that's, that's what led me to, uh, to head back to the academy and think and write about these issues uh, every single day. Well, I was wondering if the three of you could talk a little bit about how you came together to write this new patent law casebook uh, and sort of how you're distributing the workload in the process of putting together a new casebook. So I would I, I would actually want to hear uh, Sarah B's uh, side of the story, because in many ways, you know, uh, I think she was the catalyst for the project. So, um, yeah. So basically it started with a tweet um, and I was just like, we need to do this. Who wants to do this with me? <laughs> And, and I had a bunch of practitioners were actually interested, which was great, but it didn't really feel like a viable project until Anjas emailed me and I was like, okay, now it's a book. Now we're going to, we're going to do this real. If I can get Andres on board, this is a real thing. Um, and then at that point we were like, we should probably have a third person. Who do we want? And uh, Sarah was just a really obvious choice. Um, cause she's awesome and brilliant and us patent law doesn't exist in a vacuum. So I think having someone on the book who knows the international side of it was really, really important, at least to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's, uh, as, as, as Sarah uh, just mentioned, right. Her tweet was, was the spark, uh, that led to this project actually existing in the real world. You know, for me, it was in part spending many years uh, teaching this course and teaching this material and also being aware of, um, you know, James Grimmelman has maintained a, a website where he lists, you know, free and, and low cost casebooks in intellectual property and related fields. And, you know, we have a, a whole bunch of wonderful options there and there was never anything for patent law, which sort of bothered me for a while and and when I saw uh, Sarah Burstein's tweet, it was like, okay, this is this is uh, this is the time to do it. Yeah. So I I'm uh, this is Sarah Rice again. Um, so I'm really happy that Sarah Burstein did tweet that, and it did it sort of started me thinking more about it um, that this is something that should exist, and I was really hoping that she would pursue it. Um, I I didn't think she would per- pursue it uh, necessarily with me in mind, but I'm so glad that uh, she and Andres did think of me. Um, it's. Uh, it, it is something where, you know, I've mixed in some of my own cases over the years or tried to make things um, current by, by showing, okay, with uh, patentable subject matter, you know, here are the main cases, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't show, you know, a whole bunch of cases and say, what about this fact pattern? What about that fact pattern? And so there's different ways that I think already all of us um, are making the course our own a little bit. And so to put in what turns out to be more than a little work, but to put in that work and then have have something where students um, are able to access it for um, for a lot less than than what's the rest of the market free free or you know if it's a print version at print cost basically. So being able to do that is just is is really nice, and I think especially during these last six months or that feel like ten years, uh, it's been nice to to be engaged in a project that feels like it's it's going to do some some good for law students who are who are having a rough time uh, in all sorts of ways. So that's been that's been a nice piece of it as well. Could you talk some about the goals of the casebook? Did the three of you have like any guiding principles or particular things that you wanted this 
patent law casebook to accomplish? So uh, this is Sarah Reyes. I, I can take that and, I, and obviously Sarah and Andres should chime in. I think we all come at it from a fairly practical uh, background where we want to get students ready to practice. Um, all of us obviously have our, our scholarship interests and the places where we really want to um, show them what the what the conversations are about legislatively, academically, and all of that. Um, but we also want to try and uh, boil down the the cases and show how they're used in practice and show how how the history um, comes together in ways that they can they can use it uh, for arguments in court. And so I I think we we all have that same sort of sensibility, you know, from our backgrounds. Um, the way that we've used patent law um, in our practices. And so I, I think uh, it's actually been fairly seamless in terms of in terms of how we share ideas and, and have talked about how to approach different things. And I've, I've loved seeing the ways that, that Sarah and Andres pull things together to make them clearer for, for students. And hopefully I'm doing some of that too. And I would just add to that, you know, the the process is it's been very organic. You know, it's not like we sat down at the beginning and said, okay, like here's you know the the grand uh, conceptual point that we want to get across as we write the book. Obviously, we had a number of conversations early on in terms of figuring out you know what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and you know, the 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 goal, right? The primary goal, the first goal, was to make sure that there would be a you know, free or low cost option for students who want to study patent law. And, I, you know, I think that was important for a variety of reasons, one of which obviously is the um, particular m moment that law students find themselves in right now. Uh, it's also the case that patent law is a field that resonates outside of law schools um, for a lot of people. So obviously there's engineers and scientists, there are business people, there's all kinds of non-lawyers who might be interested in learning more about the subject matter. And so having uh, something that those people could use uh, to learn about this field, I thought was was important. Um, and, and in our early conversations, we also spoke to a number of other people who have authored free or low-cost casebooks. Um, Jeremy Sheff and, and, and the open access property or open source property uh, folks, and then uh, Jeannie and, and, and Chris and, and their copyright casebook, who all serve as sort of inspirations for this idea that just making something that is freely accessible and that puts the law in people's hands um, is a really valuable project. In terms of the, you know, ideas about the legal, you know, questions at stake here, I think, as, as Sarah Ryak was saying, like, part of our goal here is to present patent law as first and foremost law, you know, it, it, it's an area of the law. And so highlighting the way in which case law matters, the way in which statutory text matters, those are things that we're trying to uh, sort of foreground in, in the substance of the book. So this is Sarah Burstein, I agree with all of that. And I think, at least, to me, the accessibility point, both price and writing was really important. Patent law is something that is so scary to so many students. And I hope we can make a book um, that uh, uh, that shows that we think this is fun, right? Patent law is cool and fun. That's something that we use on the Twitter a lot, um, that I use on the Twitter a lot anyway. But it, it really is. It's not, it's not scary. So I think we're trying to make something that's accessible um, just pedagogically in addition to price-wise. 
Well, so I, I read a few chapters and I found the book really surprisingly approachable, especially for such a kind of notoriously technical subject matter. And in particular, I felt like it did a better job explaining what was going on and what the law said, but also what the law meant than some other case books that I've read. That's really great to hear. And, and, you know, totally consistent, again, with what we're saying, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here with the book, right, is to make this an area of law that is approachable to lots of people. I think all of us um, here have this have the experience where you meet students, you know, 1Ls or 2Ls, and they, you know, send you an email, they come into your office, and they're like, Oh, man, I don't know about taking patent law. I didn't study science or engineering. I don't know if it's for me. And, and we consistently have to, you know, push back against this myth that this is a field that is only uh, available to people who have either an interest or a background in, you know, getting into like super technical uh, details about the underlying inventions. And obviously, you know, the underlying inventions and the facts matter a lot, um, but it can be taught and learned in a way that's accessible to, to a wide range of people. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if an art major can do this, any of you can do this, right? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like the living example. Um, I will add that the tech part has been something that I know I've struggled with, with editing cases. And we've talked about a little bit because I do think the federal circuit puts way too much tech detail in a lot of these decisions. And from a teaching perspective, trying to sort of balance how much do you actually need to know, which is usually not a lot, with, okay, but you got to learn to read these as they show up in the wild has been sort of a attention, at least for me. You know, I want I want them to know what a real case is like to read, but then also know that you don't necessarily have to go into that amount of detail to understand the law and the facts and the application. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you're planning the book as a teaching tool. Like sort of how are you thinking about the coverage of the book? Uh, are you thinking of it up being kind of a unitary thing or something more modular? And is there going to be any kind of teacher's guide or additional material available for professors who, who might want to adopt it? Yeah, so we've actually, we've been having this conversation um, just over the last few weeks about, uh, about whether, how modular we want it to be, because we'd like, we'd like it to be useful uh, for, you know, all our colleagues, but also something that uh, professors who are starting out, junior professors or people who haven't taught patent law before uh, can pick up and is, is a fairly accessible teaching tool from the start as well. Um, and so I think, I mean, there are actually a lot of doctrines that you can teach in different orders. Um, and you might like to, if, if you want to come at, come at patent law from, from a different, different perspective. And so, uh, so we're talking about ways to make it modular so that people who might, might have sort of a, a viewpoint of how they want to do this can assign some of the patentability doctrines before they do patentable subject matter, for example, or or switch things around in different ways. I mean, we have claim construction as as its own separate chapter because it's so important both to prosecution doctrines and or to validity doctrines and to infringement doctrines. Um, and and while you would want to teach it presumably before you teach infringement, you might want to teach it way before you teach infringement. Uh, and so we're trying. We're trying to make it open to that while also having 
having a structure so that for people who haven't taught it before, they're not sort of, you know, totally, totally out, out on their own with it. Uh, so, so yeah, so th- this is um, a, a topic of ongoing conversation. And, and I think, you know, I had initially conceived it as being, you know, something that you do in a particular order, right? Like, you know, the chapter one and chapter two and chapter three. Um, and I've been persuaded um, that it's better to make it in, in, in a modular uh, or to write it in a modular way, um, because there really are a lot of different approaches that you can use uh, to, to introduce students to the material. And part of that is going to be, you know, figuring out what it is that you want to emphasize in the course. It's also partly like which cases do you think uh, your students are, are going to find uh, to be the right entry points for the material. And it's actually a real challenge in writing the book. You know, partly it's just the, you know, sort of detail oriented and, and logistics questions. You know, if you want to refer to particular cases in your notes or in, in, in the essays, like you can't say like, as you've already read, because, you know, sometimes people haven't read it yet if, if we're going to do it in a different order. Um, and one thing, you know, that, that we're sort of taking as inspiration, the way the open source property book was released, they do have different uh, builds, right? So different um, ways in which the various modules have been put together by the, the casebook authors themselves. And I think they offer like three or four different options. Uh, so that might be something we do as well, just to give people like, okay, if you want something that you can just take off the shelf, this is one of the things that, you know, we were thinking about in terms of making it a, the kind of book that as, as Sarah was just mentioning that people starting out in the field can pick up and use for their courses you know, sometimes you do want to be able to say like, okay, give me something that's ready-made that I can build my course off of, right? Other people who've maybe had a little bit more experience with the subject matter might have opinions about which way they want to start or, or which directions they want to take material and want to make it accessible for them uh, as well. Yeah, I agree with all that. The other part about just starting out that I am sort of sensitive to is that when you're a woman teaching patent law, and I'm sure that our colleagues of color have similar experiences, you really feel like you have to teach the book in order so that you don't um, get those comments in your evals, right? So that they, they, they view it as a sign that you're not an expert or you're not quote unquote doing it right. But I think the answer is there's no one way to do this, right? You talk to five different patent professors, they've got five different ways they want to cover this. So that's another reason why I like the modular approach. Um, and as far as coverage goes, it's so far at least gone sort of toward our interests. I think that's fair to say. Um, like, for example, I don't think that everyone, sorry, um, uh, will want to do two full weeks on patentable subject matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we've got that much material. Um, I also know that most people will not want to do two full weeks on design patents, but we will also have that available if you'd like to. But everybody um, wants to do international and how it affects every doctrine, right? <laughs> absolutely. Um, but that's one thing where I think we're trying to be really thoughtful about what does this look like in term of, terms of assignments, right? So that we will have a teacher's manual that has suggested syllabi and says, okay, fine. If you only want to spend one day on patentable subject matter, here's what we recommend. If you only want to spend one day on design patents, here's what we recommend. And just sort of think about it that way. And another thing that this semester has done is we're teaching the course in different ways. Um, Andres and I are using the alpha version right now as we write it in class, which is exciting and fun um, and awesome and scary. Um, but it's going great. 
Um, but you know, so I have a pretty traditional two day a week class. He's got an online class. And so trying to be thoughtful about how can we make these assignments work for different formats is something uh, I think we're really trying to be intentional about. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that, uh, that you brought that up because in terms of just putting things together, um, it's a different experience when you're teaching the course as, you know, as Sarah just said, as a traditional twice a week um, class as opposed to what I'm doing, which is an asynchronous uh, course where I'm, I'm doing different material each week. But, it's, you know, the, the packets are like week-long packets rather than class-long packets. But in terms of creating the book, you know, we've been pretty deliberate about saying, okay, you know, how much could you cover in a traditional one-day class? Like, what does a reading assignment look like? And I'd sort of never, you know, really thought about that in terms of how cases get edited and how material gets put together. But you really got to try um, to be intentional about making sure that this is a the right size reading assignment for, uh, uh, you know, one day's meeting. This book is going to be published open access. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the decision to go the open access route rather than going with a commercial publisher. And also what, if anything, you think open access as a choice means in relation to the subject matter of the book, specifically given that it's in the intellectual property area. I, I know I can't shake the feeling that you know going open access with a copyright book feels like a statement about copyright law. Do you think it's also a statement about patent law? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess there's been famous examples. <laughs> you know, we are we are just like the inventors of polio vaccine. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's plenty of examples of people who um, choose not to enforce their intellectual property rights or patent rights, um, or forego them, um, or, or do, uh, do free licenses or things like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's contemplated by the form, right? It's there. You can choose, uh, you can choose, uh, this type of protection, um, or, or you can choose to, to share the work. And I think for us, uh, it was never contemplated as anything but an open access, um, an open access type of work. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we care about it being used sort of in a form that doesn't misrepresent what we've done in any way, but, but beyond the sort of the, those types of, of worries, I think what we want is, is for people to be able to, um, to read what we've curated, curated is what we think is uh, is a valuable way to to look at patent law and learn it. Um, and and so we, I mean, we just, I guess, I guess we we haven't contemplated it the other way. This book wouldn't exist in a in any form other than open access, right? And and I think you know, there's been a lot of um, writing, a lot of thinking, a lot of debate in in intellectual property about what is the purpose of these legal regimes, right? And so, you know, I think we're all familiar from teaching our courses with this idea of, of presenting students with, okay, if we have this problem of, you know, needing to provide incentives for certain kinds of work, what are the other um, options available to us, right? There's, there's other ways to create incentives. And so I think about myself and I'm like, well, what's my, 
reason for doing work? What is the like motivation mechanism? And, and what is the compensation mechanism? I'm sort of like, well, I'm a tenured law professor. <laughs> you know, I'm getting paid like a pretty good salary and, and isn't, you know, the sort of trade-off there that my salary is supposed to pay me to produce works that enrich the public space, right? And so how do I go about enriching the public space? Well, I write a bunch of articles that very, very few people read, um, which I think are valuable. And I think they've added to, you know, to, to the world in a meaningful way. But it is an indirect form of, of making the world a better place. And so when we started on this project, you know, one of the things that I kind of sat down and did, and I have a little tweet thread about this, um, is I did like a little back of the envelope calculation. I was like, okay, you know, if I have, and I, I usually have about 50 students in my patent class, right? And they're each paying, you know, standard casebook prices are $200 uh, a pot. So each time I teach this class, I am freeing up $10,000 that could be directed elsewhere. And so that seems like the sort of thing that I really ought to do. And then, you know, as you were saying, like, is this a statement about patent law? And, and, you know, maybe I'll speak on my own behalf here. Like, absolutely, right? Uh, there, there are inventions that would exist um, even absent this legal regime. There are other inventions that wouldn't. And one of the things that's, you know, a hard question that we have to face as students, as professors, as uh, designers of, of legal systems is how do we distinguish those, right? It seemed to me a pretty reasonably easy question to put the casebook on the side of the line that can be created without this incentive um, because we have these other mechanisms, right? Like my, my, my salary and whatever fame and fortune will follow the publication of this book. Um, but, but, you know, it is, it is in my mind, a statement also about what is this legal system for and, and let's think hard about when and why we need it. So how exactly is the book, going to be published and made available. Are you doing that yourselves or are you using one of the open access publishers? So our plan right now is to do it ourselves. Speaking only for myself, I'm sort of wary about working with anyone who, I want to say cramp our style, right? But like kind of who will, you know, I don't want to have to assign any copyrights. I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have a platform that students have to buy into. Like I feel like I would want to do a lot of research into any other platform. You know, what data is it going to collect on our students, right? What's going on? Um, so if we can make it work, uh, uh, we, you know, we've talked about doing it on our own, um, but that's, that's something that's still in process. In closing, I wonder if each of you could briefly talk about the most important reasons you think that people teaching patent law should adopt your book. It's free. <laughs> so that's reason number one, probably number one, two, and three, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's important to us, again, to emphasize this idea that students, um, you know, today, but also in general, they're being put in a position where just acquiring knowledge about the law is an incredibly expensive endeavor. And everything that we as law professors can do to reduce the economic burden that students have to take on in order to become lawyers, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to, to make that decision. Um, so I, I would emphasize that. And then in addition, you know, it is a book that is designed to be accessible to, um, to people coming from a wide range of backgrounds. And, and I think making, sending that message 
to um, to to a whole range of communities is 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 really important. Yeah, so I, I I agree with Andres on on reasons one through three. Um, I think also I, so Brian, you mentioned um, that that it reads fairly clearly, um, and I think that's something that we've we've really worked to do. Um, when I was when I was uh, still a, a VAP and in a fellowship position, uh, I was given the advice not to hide the ball from students. Uh, that that the material is always complicated enough for people who haven't yet learned it and that uh and that presenting it very very clearly still leaves so much so much for for people to work through and puzzle through on their own and so i think that's that's really i mean both both sarah and andres write really clearly um and i think that's something that we've all shared in terms of how we present the material and i think it is true that there is still a lot to learn and a lot to figure out about patent law um, it's not predictable. Things change. It's a really dynamic field. And so I think that it's really important to understand the doctrinal development if you want to be an effective patent litigator. And so I think that we've we've really worked hard to present things clearly by saying sort of what the state of the law is and then showing how it's applied, both with the sort of big historical cases and then also with more modern cases. And so I think using this book will really help people become excellent patent litigators. And so I, I hope that people will adopt it. I think it, it's good for students, you know, just on, on first look because of the price thing. Um, but I think that what we're putting together is, is actually a really good book. So I'm really excited about it. And, and I'm, I think my co-authors have been fantastic to work with. So I hope people take a look. Okay, now I feel bad because my answer was going to be design patents, and you guys just gave really serious, like good, like excellent, thoughtful answers. Um, but uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that one thing that I'm excited about is that in addition to all the things that my co-authors just said, which are totally right, um, and I totally endorse and adopt, um, I'm just really excited to have a book that takes sort of the fact that we have three types of patents seriously. And even if people choose not to teach the chapters on plants and designs, even though I hope they will and they should, um, you know, sort of even the way we talk about things. Because so often in the field, we use the word patent to just mean utility patents. And I think that can actually cause doctrinal problems, right? Because we start to think that this doctrine or this development or this rule is a patent thing when really it's just a utility patent thing. And so if nothing else, you know, I hope students uh, will read this and see that there is more of a world and there are sort of questions we can ask, like what even is a patent? What should be a patent? And take this seriously in a way that I think that maybe past books really haven't. Well, thanks so much to all of you for coming on the show and congratulations on this excellent book, which I think is honestly a huge contribution to legal academia and a boon to patent law students everywhere. Thanks so much for having us, Brian. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters.
Such an instrument is the turbo-encabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus o delta type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the Grammys. The turboencabulator has now reached a high level of development and it's being successfully used in the operation of nofertrunions. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal replenition. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it.